0: Hello lovers of light, this is Make It Count, I'm Elinka your host and I hope you will enjoy this. If you enjoyed last episode that was dedicated to Michael Jackson, maybe you will stick around this time to hear some from Robin Williams, one of my favorite actors and one of my favorite spirits. This whole episode has a point. It is here to remind you that we never know what hides behind a beautiful smile, behind a humorous person that makes us enjoy ourselves. We never know what is inside of them and how they go through life, what makes them tick, what makes them hold on, and what eventually makes them give up. So even before allowing yourself to evaluate them or judge them for what they appear to be, ask yourself, do I really know what lays behind that public persona? Because even if they are a great artist, actually one of their major talents is to perform to be the way that people know them, that people like them. And most of the times they even forget who they are until they step out of the limelight. Uh, when they step aside from the stage and they open their House's door. So let's remember that the greatest artists who are amazing and tremendously talented are also human beings and they have the same capacity, even more so, the same sensitivity, even more so than us. And they tap into that sensitivity, into that inner light, in order to give us more, more of them. Every time, more. They create and recreate themselves. They invent characters. They personify characters. They go through different emotional states every day with a great intensity with great purpose and with great loyalty to their craft to their art so i would plead for um, the artists because what people seem to forget is that the artists, in order to be that talented, in order to touch so many souls through every single one of their works of art, they have to tap into their emotions and they have to play With those emotions like with an instrument. And you know very well how fragile we are. And how deep can those emotions be. And it's not easy at all to get in and out of those emotions. To balance reality with imagination because the brain, the human brain, doesn't know to make the difference between imagination and reality. And so those states of mind, those states of being are not just a game, they are not fake. They have to go through them and leave them as their own Even if they belong to a character, it is very important to remember that because an artist knows, an artist consciously knows that they are playing a role, that they are interpreting a piece. Of art that can be a role in the theaters or a role at the opera or a role as a musician or as a composer or whatever their art may be they know consciously that that is just a piece of art That they transmute through their mind, soul, and body. They embody completely in order to deliver it to the public. But most of the times they don't realize how much that transmutation, that delivery, costs them. And when they finally realize the price that they paid time and time again, in order to be able to deliver the most magnificent works of art, they are consumed. So it's very, very, very important to stretch the fact that the artists need to regenerate, recuperate, ground themselves, align themselves, get refreshed and energized. And most of the time they are on such a harsh schedule that they don't have time to take a breather. People demand, the public demands to see more, to enjoy more of them and it's normal it's natural because we love them so much we appreciate their work but it costs them a lot physically mentally emotionally energetically it takes a lot for them to be the ones that we adore the ones that we admire so in order to get more of that beauty we have to learn to respect them, respect their time, respect their work, respect their intimacy, allow them to breathe, allow them to be humans that enjoy life beyond their creations, beyond their works of art, beyond their artistic expression, and most of the artists don't get that, don't receive that from the managers, from um, their accountants, from their lawyers, from the public, nobody really is interested in their well-being, Because there is a lot of money, there is a lot of interest, there is a lot of agitation around them. To get better and better and then to thrive and when they thrive to be more present and then to be even more present and then to be at the most select and outrageous events and so on and so forth. But what about the human that needs to have a life, to have a family, to enjoy nature, to enjoy the simple things. What about them, their privacy, their intimacy, their alone time, their silence? In order to be able to be that piece of art embodied in a human being. And to let Everything that you have dedicated to that piece of art on stage, you have to be able to get out of stage and listen to the silence, breathe the oxygen and feel the freedom in order to be able to come back again and again, we have to insist that this becomes a rule because without this rule we are losing precious artists, we're losing precious human beings and we are losing them to mental emotional energetic illnesses we lose them to addictions we lose them to their depression and their desire to get out of of everything that is overwhelming for them at a certain point. We lose them to heartbreak, to loneliness, and it's very painful to see them go. It's even more painful to let them go. And it's also very painful to watch them on TV or listen to them on a record or on the radio or anywhere because the internet allows us to access memories of them. And we can't believe that we are forced to say Oh boy, I loved this artist. And talk about them at the past tense. And we always, always ask, but why? Because we feel like it was not their time to go. And yet they went. The answer lies in everything that I said before. We should be able to be as much there for them as they have been there for us with every single appearance in public, with every single delivery of a magnificent role or a magnificent piece of music or any kind of piece of art. I think that there is a way for us to be there for them and to support them in a healthy way so that they stay with us a little longer piece of an interview that Robin Williams gave to BBC Hard Talk back in 1999. Let's listen to his very own voice and words.
1: Jacob the Liar is a very bleak film. Did it test your sense of humor? Yeah, because we were shooting in Poland. What was the Jewish ghetto in a, in a town called Piotrkow? Yeah, because as an American, never having been anywhere near that type of horror or abuse or deprivation, it was, it was very, you know, reticent to even get near the human that situation. But after talking to survivors, reading about it, that it existed, but it was not—it's not like a joke per se. but It's almost like, like, like great Jewish humor this, There's such pain in it that, you know, it's just to keep you going as a survivor, to become a survivor in the face of that. Was it hard to make the humor work under those circumstances? Yeah, to find it, to find the right level, I mean, to not, to make it very specific for the characters between each other, to make it, that's what helped, and to have a director like Peter Kasovitz, who was a Hungarian Jew, whose parents were survivors, and to, who basically would sit there and say, you have to forget your own sensitivity to these issues, and... Just harden up, toughen up, and become a survivor. Become someone who's just getting through day to day. Making humor out of a situation where one of the characters, the barber, for instance, is climbing on a chair to hang himself. Yeah, but it's literally gallows humor to keep, you know, to say, wait a minute, I have something to Go ahead and hang yourself, but you'll miss something. What? And, you know, that thing of what do you do? Because they're friends, they have memories, you know, they have this kind of friendship where they're always very combative, but that's what but kept them going. It's still a memory of who they were before the war, before all of this. That the Germans would try and, like, there used to be a line in the script that he took out, but it was like, they cut down all the trees, which is what they did to, to deny cover, but also just to kind of deprive you of anything from before. And Jacob was basically asking God and his wife, why do you cut down the trees? They're not Jewish, are they? And the idea that, you know, what is it? Why? How do you keep going when everything is denied you? And the thing he says is little things, the smallest connection with somebody else, allows you to keep going and you know the camps were one step the ghetto was a step before the concentration camps and the link were the trains the transports were which would come and take you know liquidate the the entire town so it was always there and because he worked in the freight yard it was always there and you see the trains there's something quite horrific about them because everyone knows that the trains were the transport you know it sounds as though it opened your eyes. You know, My eyes, I mean, I've known about it. You read about it. It's one thing to read about it. Then all of a sudden you're in the place and you're in Poland. And you're coming, you know, Poland is just now, in all of Poland there's only 4,000 Jews. We went to a Passover service in a temple that was with 32 people. And they'd had to move the temple from another place, another room that they had, because someone had put a swastika on the door. And the rabbi said, why are they anti-Semitic? There aren't that many of us. Does it still exist? Yes. Some days we were walking to the set with the Star of David, and an old Polish drunk would come out going Jew, and you knew that he was the age where he probably yelled it the first time too. How did that make you feel? It made you. It was just this momentary thing. It just there was such an anger, and yet you realized at that time they couldn't respond. At that time could we have all gone and probably nailed him? You know, you know, jumped, you know, pounded on him. Yeah. But yet it was this thing of there's an anger and a a debasing thing, and how he did. Yeah, it was immediate. You know, it was, people had to kind of restrain people, say just leave it alone, because the poles restrained him; they pulled him away. But he was drunk. But you knew that that was still there—the same anti-Semitism. It's such a strong sense of place, isn't it? And particularly when Immediate. you use it's not, local, you're not shooting local on a extras. set, and when you have local extras. I mean, not that many of them were Jewish, but some were. And yet there was one man who was a survivor who played an actor in the movie, Yanish. Uh, the old man who I said to him, there's no radio, What do you mean? What is the... and there's no radio, and then eventually he dies. He was a survivor. It was even more surreal to think he's doing a movie about what he lived. And he was the one that said, do not be afraid of the humor. It existed. And that was why, you know, it's for us it's like, all right, just keep going. Make it. Do the movie. Make it as dark as possible and yet have moments of humor in the face of that. Will it be accepted? I don't know. You know, this was movie made... Th- Two and a half years ago, at the same time, if not a little before, Life is Beautiful. The idea of making a humor, with, making a movie with any humor about this subject was like, can you do this? And yet we did. I mean, it's, but it is it as much a comedy as Life is Beautiful. No, it's more of a drama with moments of humor, and that's why I think it's interesting. Did you have a favorite moment where you thought the humor worked best? There's the darkest moment for me is when all of a sudden he's sitting with Kowalski, talking to him and said, there's no radio. And then he's, Kowalski, it's the blackest joke of all. He said, the Germans are tearing apart the, the ghetto and there's no radio. And that laugh he has, which is, you know, he's, he's, it's like a, he's laughing and sobbing simultaneously. That's the darkest moment. Hard to come off the set after that and to wind down, isn't it? Very. After? Yeah, it's difficult how, do you, how did you do it? I try and just, you know, I call home and just you call and see how your children are. You know the hideous thing is to think about the scenes with Lena are very difficult because the the little girl played by Hannah. You know, it's he's very much he's it's not his child and yet he's trying to take care of her. And she has a face that many Europeans say looks almost like Anne Frank. She has a face of a woman and the eyes but they're still the eyes of a girl. A little girl. Those were the toughest scenes. You, you know, enjoy they, trying to play the part of the radio, didn't she? For her, it was fun, because doing, it's very specific. Voices. Yeah, because it's for her. It's very much about her. Making it happen for her, but yet not letting her see, you know, keeping the illusion alive for her, and making it not look like you're performing for her, but really creating the radio. It's, yeah, it was very interesting. It's very, very specific stuff, and very, you know, doing Churchill for her, doing Stalin for her. Churchill, yeah, like, you've got them very well. I, you? Yeah, that is Churchill with the Polish accent. And the Polish people? I am worried. Yeah, it is. and then kind of filtering it through, you know, to make it sound like you are speaking through that. Yeah, it was interesting to do. And, you know, to, to walk the line even with that.
0: You- so let's move and jump timelines until 2009 when Robin Williams was on stage performing stand-up comedy.
1: Ta-da! You are an alcoholic! And some people say, Robin, I'm a functioning alcoholic. Which is, you can be one. It's like being a paraplegic lab dancer. You can do it. Just not as well as the others, really. When I was growing up, they used to say, Robin, drugs can kill you. And now that I'm 58, my doctor's going, Robin, you need drugs to live. <laughs> and I realized my doctor is my dealer now and a lot harder to get a hold of. And he's always giving me free samples, like, yo, Roblo, some Lipitor, motherfucker, try it out. That's all I can hook you up with right now. I got got an HMO on my back, baby, that's all I can do. And it's weird, too, and these drugs have side effects that go on for fucking days, like tendency to grow another head, oh my God. When we were growing up, we knew the side effects of the drugs we were taking, cocaine. Side effects were paranoia, ninjas on the lawn. I remember that side effects were talking in tongues English as a second language I, I remember that marijuana side effects were laughter frosted flakes that's all I remember but now there are side effects which fucking rival the syndrome there's a syndrome called restless leg syndrome what the fuck is that a tendency to break out in the river dance, like oh dear craze grandma's got fucking restless leg syndrome take care kids I'm on my way to Dublin take care And side effects include compulsive gambling and obsessive sexual behavior. That's not a side effect, that's fucking Vegas! They should just give you a bus ticket and say, good luck. And how soon before they have a drug where side effects may include rectal ventriloquism. If your asshole starts talking, call a doctor. Or get friends over, because it's going to be a fun night and what a great side effect for a politician I was never with that woman liar liar he's an asshole and so am I because I had open heart surgery well let you know exactly what the fuck it is open heart an angiogram does not let you know what they're going to do an angiogram is where they go through your groin to your heart and who knew that the way to a man's heart was through his groin and women and many women are going we've known that forever (laughs) yes Simple, you grab a man's balls, his heart will follow. And I found out I had a bad heart because they did an echocardiogram, and my heartbeat was like. My cardiologist went, That's not good. My Latin friend said, No, you could dance to that. That's kind of. Cool. And then they did the angiogram, and I heard my. I had a blown valve, which makes me sound like a Chevrolet, like, What the fuck? And they started offering me choices about what type of valves I can get. And here are some of my choices. Number one, a porcine valve, which is a pig valve, which is kind of cool, because you're already inoculated for swine flu, number one. (laughs) And one of the side effects is you can find truffles, which is kind of cool. (laughs) I was hoping to get an equine valve or a horse valve. That would be great, because then you can hang out of your shorts like, Oh, my God. (laughs) Baby, I'm sorry, I just got excited. And to get out of the house, you have to have a midget jump on your back. when we're going outside right now. How many months since the surgery? Five. And then they offered me a mechanical valve, which is kind of cool. I thought, maybe I can get the new Apple iHeart. That would be great. Comes with 20,000 emotions. And that would be, I mean, I thought, wait a minute. If I could get an iHeart, ladies, how about this? Instead of breast implants, speakers. Wouldn't that be cool? We'll call them blue chits. They'll be compatible with the heart. And if you can't afford speakers, just put in a squeak toy. We're that simple. That'd be great. A lot of you men will be going, "Eh, oh, yeah, baby. "Eh, eh, (laughs) (laughs) And I'll put a whistle in my dick so when you blow me, woo! Kind of fun, but I ended up getting a bovine valve, which is a cow valve which is kind of cool, because you can shit standing up. That's great. <clears throat> great to be here, nice to be here. But after the surgery, you get very emotional. It's like, you know, it's like weird. People go, how are you? God, thanks for asking. And I got so emotional, I thought instead of a valve, they gave me a tiny vagina, which is like, what? How are you? Much better now, thank you. Mm. Oh God. Don't use the paddles, just rub me here, there we go. And if this is a symbol for men, is this a symbol for women? Don't jerk me off. I won't. God bless. Thank you. And the surgery, the surgery went amazing. I had a doctor who had done 4,000 surgeries. All of them fucking amazing. That was great. You don't want a doctor who's done six surgeries, three of them haven't gone that well. You don't want a guy going, let's see what happens. And the surgery was pretty amazing, it went fantastic. First thing to come back online, your heart, beep, 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 great. Then your brain, last thing, asshole. <clears throat> the drugs make you so constipated, I thought they're gonna have to bring in a priest to do a rectal exorcism. <laughs> Demon turned, fall from his ass. The power of fiber compels you. The power of fiber compels you. And after the surgery, they put you on a little self-medicator, which is fucking great. You're like, eh, <laughs> I want to thank my anesthesiologist because I don't fucking remember his name. And the drug they gave me for the surgery was a drug called propofol, which his nickname is nicknamed as milk of amnesia. Fucking insane drug. I had that in a surgical situation. Michael Jackson was taking propofol at home to sleep. Fuck off. <laughs> A doctor said taking propofol to sleep is like doing chemotherapy because you're tired of shaving your fucking head.
0: Robin Williams touched a lot of subjects that were very close to him, even though he used a sense of humor, there was still a lot of truth behind his words. You know, hindsight is twenty-twenty. When I looked at him, I always felt deep sadness, a um, very, very old soul with such depth that Amazed me. I love that part of him as well, and I would say even more than his sense of humor, which is amazing. Any kind of movie that he played in was his creation as well, because his roles wore his signature, wore his talent, his energy, his love for the public and love for the art I cannot not take breaks and take a little breather each time I speak of Robin Williams because I have been so moved by him in so many ways and so very inspired that I cannot begin to express everything that I feel for the glimpse of Robin Williams that I was privy to I was honored to be privy to and there are some artists with whom you would really enjoy being stuck on repeat and I think that Robin Williams is one of those artists that I would love to be stuck on repeat For a long while because some part of me resonates with some part of him maybe it's the soul factor the old soul that understands and sees so much more than he could ever convey or maybe it is the um, combination between the um, raucous laughter that he inspires in people and that underlying sadness that permeates the room. His presence is still very much alive even though he passed away and joined the angels. I believe that He was an angel on earth and I believe that he is a very very beautiful angel in the spirit world. Here is a quote from Robin Williams about stand-up comedy and how it is a great therapy. It was him telling the truth once again and pointing out that we are both strong but also very sensitive. And we need to consider our sensitivity. It was something that he put out to the collective consciousness that some people may have noticed, others haven't. But I hope that by listening to this podcast, more of you will get the memo that Robin Williams place there for us to grab and understand. We are as strong as our weakest point.
1: It's always been a, a wonderful kind of alternative to the acting because it was it would pay, it did two things, pay the bills and also great therapy. Therapy? Yeah, literally. I mean, to be able to talk about things, that was, you know, what things going on in my life, going on in the world, it was always kind of a great release. Especially like in the early days with Mork on, it was kind of the anti-Mork. I could do something that was slightly darker and funnier and crazier. And people go, oh, so I wouldn't just be stuck going, hi, how are you? (laughs) So I can actually do something, I mean, totally different, which was great. How is it different today than it was when you began? Um, on the street corner of San Francisco. Um, I actually began doing mime in New York, which yeah. is kind of crazy. I mean, I was going to Juilliard studying right. acting, and I would do street performing mime in front of the Metropolitan Museum, and the <laughs> scariest people in the world were the ladies of Madison Avenue. you would imitate them. They'd go, get the hell away from me. <laughs> this is before Botox, where their faces were just frozen, like, get away from me, and even the animals that they were wearing, going, get away, you hurt you. But it was always this kind of thing of performing was a, you know, get out and do it. It was that release for me. Yeah. and but you you did you find instant response? Oh well, yeah. With comedy, I think because you you have to. I mean, yeah. there's very little stand-up tragedy. <laughs> yeah, yes, but it's there's there's It took a while. I mean, I just I started off because I was also trained in the theater. I could be I could go off mic, which is my style. If so, a lot of times people need the mic and be kind of for, and I'd be like all over the place. But that was my attack style. And I'd go for it. And yeah, it seemed to be working right off the bat. But did the training I had at Juilliard help? Oh, big time. I think it allowed me to do. Two Jews walk into a park. <laughs> yes. It could happen. And yet, my gentle friend, that does pulse beneath me. <laughs> what now, O oh, throbbed one? Shakespearean <laughs> oh, porn? Oh, yes, yes don't indeed. go there. Don't, no, please. To part you like a spring log? Nay, nay, say no. not so. So what are you doing in weapons of destruction? Self destruction? Self destruction. Um, Talking about pretty much everything, everything that's kind of happened, the heart surgery. Yeah. I mean, the idea of even the valves, they gave me the choice of getting, you know, different valves. The porcine valve, which I said is wonderful. You're already inoculated for swine flu. And you can find truffles. Yes. And a bovine valve, which is great, because yeah. you can crap standing up. You're more stubborn. But, you know, it's, but it is that play, weird. Play in the dirt. Play in the dirt. How are you doing? And <laughs> you know, college kids tip you over at night. Yeah. But and, and I thought, you know, because after the heart surgery, you find yourself yeah. getting very emotional.
0: So the heart surgery gets you really emotional. How many people actually talk about heart surgery and how they felt during those times? How many people who haven't had, thank God, heart surgery know what to expect? If anyone from their surroundings has to go through that and how many of them are aware that any kind of surgery, any kind of medical intervention creates a sense of frailty and, well, why not confess it's scary, it's very, very scary. and. The people who are going through these experiences that are so very terrifying are in great need of moral support. There's nothing that you can do physically, there's nothing that you can add to um, a group of great surgeons that are going to perform on you You can pray and keep your spirits uplifted as much as you can, but you need so very much more the presence of the loved ones, their um, love. And I think that by getting himself at that place of vulnerability, that place of truth, he told the world in his own way without preaching without condemning without pointing the finger that you should be there for the ones who are going through something so life changing so earth shattering as a heart surgery you should be there for them you should infuse them with with love and support because it's absolutely terrifying and at the same time even if you're brave even if you make jokes there's a part of you that wonders if they are ever going to come back or not so that tells me that Robin Williams really wanted to leave. This tells me that he was frail and scared about his open heart surgery because he was wondering if he would ever come back from that. So his will to survive, his will to go forward and live a full life is clear from this message. So whatever happened to, to him was not something that happened because he chose to pass away. Au contraire, on the contrary, he seemed to be, I don't know, he seemed to be in that place where he knew his weaknesses, he knew his strengths, and he was willing to conquer the world with them both at his side. And his weapons against all odds were to try to know himself as best as he could and to manage the encounter between him and the rest of the world with Invigorating humor and a touch of melancholy. What anybody
1: tells you words and ideas can change the world, and the human race is filled with passion. In medicine, law, business, engineering these are noble pursuits necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for, and you are here, That life exists, and identity. That the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Why can't we treat death with a certain amount of humanity, and dignity, and decency, and God forbid, maybe even humor? Death is not the enemy, gentlemen. If we're going to fight a disease, let's fight one of the most terrible diseases of all, indifference. A doctor's mission should be not just to prevent death, but also to improve the quality of life. That's why you treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you win, no matter what the outcome. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. You know a lot about him. That's work political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, I've seen that. If I ask you about women, you'll probably give me a silver say your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. You can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. I ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap. Watch watching him gasp his last breath, looking to him for I ask you about love, probably call me a sonnet never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer about sleeping sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. You know, as we come to the end of this phase of our life, we find ourselves trying to remember the good times trying to forget the bad times, We find ourselves thinking about the future, start to worry, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be in 10 years? But I say to you, None of us are very long on this earth. Life is fleeting. And if you're ever distressed, cast your eyes to the summer sky. When the stars are strung across the velvety night. And when a shooting star streaks through the blackness, turning night into day.
0: Recording that quote, that compilation of quotes from Robin Williams, it started pouring rain and it's pouring and pouring we may get a thunder soon enough If nature allows, <laughs> that was a sign for me that this intense emotional remembrance of Robin Williams was received. And as much as I cried and laughed with Robin, I feel that this is a sign that he's still very much here. in spirit, and his art, all his art is ever present, and as long as we remember him, he will live forever.
1: I mean, did that start out as one voice, the genie? Because yeah, they wanted me to do the script. And then I came in one day, uh, the first day, and read it and tried it, the scripted version. And then I asked, do you mind if I play? They went, no, no, try And I just went off and did everything I knew. And it was great because I, I did about, I don't know how many... Uh, did events. they just let you run riot? And... Oh, big time. There's 30 hours of stuff that they eventually condensed. Mrs. Dartfire's voice. Where is it exactly is it? Is it's kind of uh, it's a synthesis of um, it's like a Glaswegian accent because I just finished working with Bill Forsyth for four months so it's I uh, I first started doing uh, the voice was very much like that <laughs> it's like Julia Child and I realized that would scare even a hyperactive child <laughs> so I had to kind of tune it down and I got more like Margaret Thatcher on steroids and I went down. <laughs> Listen to Genie, dear, Genie knows. You've got to get your mind off this incessant waiting. Here's a surefire way to cheer up a bummed-up bride to be. A heaping helping of matrimonial magic. Hey, that's no good. What the wedding needs is a theme. It needs a groom, too, but let's work with what we have. not a live, just sit and potter Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade
0: This was Make It Count I'm Ilinka, your host And if you have enjoyed this episode Don't forget to listen to the previous ones Thank you for your support And for your comments on Facebook. Until next time, be kind to yourselves. And don't forget to smile.